This is Porch Tales, a Humanities DC podcast where we hear the stories of those who shape the history and culture of our nation's capital. Warning, the following program contains brief profanity and offensive historical language. Listener discretion is advised. Humanities DC presents Porch Tales, The Disappearing of Sister Coco with Professor D. Boose. When I got to campus at Howard, I recall the first time I walked from Douglas Hall, which was my, my dorm, which is the dorm that's closest to the main campus. Uh, it, 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 it just was, I don't know how to describe it. I was so excited. And um, there was so much going on. It, it, it was it was September, the fall, but kids had come back from the summer. They were wrapping up things they had done. There were students there who had been active all summer. Some kids had not gone home. And it was interesting to me to just see all of it. And the main thing that was going on that I did understand and I got involved with immediately was they were gearing up for Freedom Summer. Welcome back, everyone. This is episode two of The Disappearing of Sister Coco. I'm your host, Professor D. Boos, alongside DJ Influence. In the last episode, I introduced you to an amazing Black freedom fighting activist living in relative obscurity in the DC metro area. She is, of course, Sister Coco. In this week's installment, we'll get into how she got the name Sister Coco, joined the Black Freedom Movement, and started a lifetime journey of activism. In the fall of 1963, Sister Coco moved to a bustling Washington, D.C. She arrived to Howard University's campus, a starry-eyed young lady. Like many, she was eager to get involved in campus life. And in her first weeks, she participated in sports, made friends, and began to learn her new home. She tells me about it here. Oh, I was thoroughly excited getting out of little teeny Newport news, <laughs> bad news. <laughs> and of course the campus was at that time of the year, just bustling with all kinds of activities and students moving around and a kiosk set up for directions. It was very exciting to me. Do you remember anything about neighborhoods? Did you stay on campus? Did you stay off campus? Any memories of that? Yes, I stayed on campus the first two years. And what was that like? Oh, exciting. I remember there was a sister on the floor who had, I didn't know at the time, but she had mastered the skill of scoping the freshmen coming in and doing quote trades with them to freshen up her wardrobe. So you coming in, all your stuff, and uh, maybe you've been looking at it for a while. <clears throat> would like to see somebody else's stuff. So that was her signature piece to, <laughs> to catch up with the uh, freshmen coming in and do trade-offs. Oh, oh, that's cool. Would you like this kind of a thing? 
So I was naive to so much and um, I was swept into her, her lure, but I soon found out that people found that my background and things that I could do, knew how to do and had done was exciting to them. So it was cool. Like many first-year students, Sister Coco explored new interests in college and began to make some of the earliest decisions that would reshape her life course. All right, I don't have a lot of memories about it. You were talking about you were in the in, uh, one of the runners on the track team. Oh yes, well it wasn't a track team. That was an activity that occurred the first freshman year. When you first come, and do all these things to uh, acclimate you to the school and get you to meet people. So one of the things was athletic activities. I, I, I was always a good runner. Well, of course, I participated in that. Nobody could, no, nobody could beat me. So I either dumped myself or someone else dumped me to pass a female track star at Howard in, in 63. Because that was, that was freshman activity. There were a lot of things to distract you from what you went there to do. <laughs> of course, we didn't uh, see it that way at that time. But I got very involved with student activities. So much so that I went there uh, in September to become a nuclear physicist with a double major in math and physics. And uh, I changed my major next the next year. Sister Coco's college career at Howard began just weeks after the March on Washington brought a quarter million people to the National Mall. There, they called for better access to jobs for Black people and an end to job discrimination, which was common. They urged the U.S. Congress to pass meaningful legislation to fight anti-Black racism, discrimination, and violence. They also heard Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s most famous speech. Sister Coco was living in an epicenter of Black freedom organizing and protests in the nation. Now we will begin our questioning with Mr. Parasoram. Dr. King, this year, 1963, is, I suppose, going to be a decisive year in the struggle of the Negro race for equality in this country. I wonder whether you could tell us what has been achieved so far this year and what your immediate goals are going to be. So far this year, we have seen many cities in the southern part of the United States desegregate public facilities as a result of the mass de demonstrations that have taken place, the various sit-in movements and so forth. And uh, I think this will continue. It seems to me that uh, probably now more than ever before, we stand uh, on the threshold of a very significant breakthrough in civil rights in the United States. And I think we have a good chance to get strong, meaningful civil rights legislation. And if this uh, legislation is enacted and implemented, we will go a long, long way toward uh, making the American dream a reality. <laughs> so let's <clears throat> talk a little bit more about 
Howard. How was that experience? Was it similar or did, did, you, did it feel like a very different experience? So being at Howard, seeing people from different places, all of that, what got me was the NAG organization organizing and collecting for Freedom Summer the next year. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. It was wonderful because uh, being a store owner, we had to help feed. We didn't have to, but we chose to help feed families in the neighborhood who didn't have food. Uh, you know, they would come up and give us a, 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 a list of food they wanted, and then they would sign it, which meant it was on credit, and they'd pay us, you know, when they got their checks. So often, kids would come, and we knew they didn't have food at home. We'd feed them. My mom would have some picks. She'd buy them clothes and shoes during the summer. They weren't in school. They weren't eating. So I also had the, I grew up with the nurturing habits and instincts and just helping, helping people. And my family was in a position to do that. And that's what we did. And so when I got to Howard, and saw them collecting for Freedom Summer and went to those NAG meetings talking about registering people to vote. They couldn't vote. They didn't have a say-so. It was just wonderful for me. You know, we voted at home. We had say-so. We had black this and black that, you know. So it was good. This Freedom Summer thing that Sister Coco keeps referring to was a major project that NAG and other civil rights groups undertook in Mississippi in the summer of 1964. These civil rights organizers planned to send black and white students together into the state to support ongoing local efforts for black voter registration and civic education. Ultimately, it was a serious and very dangerous effort that highlighted racist discrimination, voter suppression, and white supremacist oppression in the state. It laid an important groundwork for black political empowerment there. Freedom Summer volunteers and supporters like Sister Coco engaged in one of the most important organizing efforts of the civil rights era. So you got involved with that? Oh yes, oh yes. Just went to the meeting, went to the meeting. Most of them um, had been involved with SNCC started in 60 and they had had some experience um, and they um, organized the campus at Howard. I got there in 63 and uh, most of them had been there a couple of, couple of three years and um, um, learning about the plights of uh, the people that they were working with, learning about, and, and, and for me it was so easy because we would pack up grocery bags and send them to people, you know, so it was just an extension and, and, and so needy. So I got involved and um, I just kind of threw myself into it. The Nonviolent Action Group of Howard University called NAG for short was an important collective of activists engaged in desegregation and anti-discrimination activism in the DC, Maryland, and Virginia areas. NAG was essentially the local chapter of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC. 
Its core activists were students of Howard University and their allies. Some of America's most well-known student civil rights activists were members of Howard's NAG, such as Stokely Carmichael, Cleveland Sellers, Cortland Cox, and Muriel Tillinghast. graduated in 63 and integration came in 65. When I went back and forth home from Howard, you know, we couldn't eat at the bus stops and all of that stuff. Integrate. In fact, uh, we, 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 we demonstrated along Route 50 between Howard and Baltimore, Route 40 rather, because of, uh, it, it helped to, to usher in the interstate commerce decision that they could not discriminate on federal roads, but we used to wear Route 40 out, um, you know, bag and uh, um, whatever else the other local organizations were. And um, Salisbury, I never went to Salisbury to demonstrate, but the other kids at Howard went to Salisbury, which was, you know, part of their Route 40 um, activities. How would you describe that experience of, of before you all were, de- were oh. demonstrating? <laughs> well, that was interesting. Before integration, you know, there was a thing called um, the chicken box. <laughs> it wasn't a real chicken box, but it was just acknowledged in the black community that when you took a trip, you had to fry chicken and put it in the shoe box or a similar sturdy box because you had to eat on the bus or or when you stopped, maybe on a bent somewhere, but you couldn't go inside and eat. So that was one of the pleasures. <laughs> and of course, um, the Mason-Dixon line, which wasn't really in D.C., it's north of D.C., but it was, D.C. was designated the place where when you traveled on the train coming from the north, you could sit wherever you wanted to sit until you got to D.C. Got to D.C. You had to get off training and only be in the, the trains in the back, the seats in the back of the train. Um, and of course, uh, coming from the South, you had to bring your own food because you couldn't you couldn't eat in any places where they stopped. And if you did want to get something, they always had a window or some hole in the wall in the back of these stops where you could maybe get a um, I think that people who strive to gain social acceptance through their, they, although they call nonviolent or passive resistance, they're the most violent. Uh, I also think that uh, uh, it is uh, in violation to my civil rights if uh, someone can say, "You must serve me if you own," if a man. Put, if a man owns an eating establishment, uh, if he can't choose whom he pleases to ch- serve or not to serve, that can affect me and you and anyone else. Some of the civil rights groups that Sister Coco mentions, alongside NAG, as active in the desegregation protests on Route 40 and in Salisbury, Maryland, include the Civic Interest Group, a.k.a. CIG, and the Congress of Racial Equality. CORE was the nationally known civil rights group 
engaged in nonviolent desegregation activism since the 1940s, or Baltimore was its city chapter. In contrast, the CIG of Baltimore was locally rooted. It included black students from Morgan State and some white students from other area colleges, all of which were active in civil rights desegregation protests since the 1950s. However, by the early 1960s, desegregation protests along Maryland's highways got new attention. There are important reasons for this new coverage. For one, racist discrimination along Maryland's major roads was causing national public relations problems for the United States. In one infamous incident, an African ambassador to the U.S. from the nation of Chad got Jim Crow treatment. In July of 1961, Malik So, a visibly black man, stopped at a Route 40 roadside restaurant on his way to Washington, D.C. from New York City. There, he was rudely denied service. A Life magazine report captured the ugly incident. So, told Life, quote, When I asked for coffee, the good woman said she could not serve me. She said, that's the way it is here. I cannot say how I felt. I was astonished. I was so angry. President Kennedy himself has made deep apologies, but these humiliations are bad. Everyone can exploit them. The magazine also received comments from Mrs. Leroy Merritt of the Bonnie Bray Diner. She said, quote, he looked like just an ordinary run-of-the-mill nigger to me. I couldn't tell he was an ambassador. We serve them if they don't get noisy, but only out of the goodness of our hearts. I said, there's no table service here. We've got our life savings in this place, and the main part of our trade is southern truck drivers. This incident and its international attention embarrassed the Kennedy administration as it sought to position the United States as a positive force in the 1960s world of decolonizing nations and the ongoing conflicts of the Cold War. In this context, civil rights groups like CORE, the CIG, NAG, and other SNCC affiliates teamed up with organizers of communities along Route 40 to fight the discrimination. Ultimately, the clear threat of protests, federal pressure, and more bad press led many restaurants and service stations along Route 40 to desegregate before the planned protests took place. Consequently, lead organizers called off the protests. However, that didn't mean all discrimination ended on Route 40, and struggles continued. By 1963, when Sister Coco arrived at Howard, two years had passed since the first protests, yet civil rights groups were still engaging in demonstrations and other efforts to fight segregation along Route 40 and in other Maryland towns, like Salisbury and Cambridge, both along the state's Route 50 and on the Eastern Shore. Um, you were a, you were a part of the NAG group, is that right? You know... I'm assuming that I was because I volunteered the first year I was there and I continued working with them. So I'm assuming I was. People 
were a part of Nick at points when I don't know if they had a membership card, you know, if they supported it. They, you know. So I'm not quite sure how that official dumb worked. Mm-hmm. But I, but I know I certainly upon my entrance at Howard um, became involved with their activities. Is that where you met Stokely Carmichael? Yeah. So he's probably the one of the most famous, right, that come out of that group. Do people ask you about that? Like, so Howard University and SNCC at that campus was, you know, one of the, the leading student organizing groups. Do you get people who, who ask you about that time in group? Um, you know, people don't generally know that I was, you know, at this many years past. The director of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee's Voter Registration Project in Mississippi, Robert Moses. Young people working with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC as we call it, are characterized by restless energy, radical change in race relations in the United States. Their world is upset and they feel that if they are ever going to get it straight, they must upset it more. NAG's civil rights activism in Cambridge, Maryland produced deeply impactful experiences for its members. There, Sister Coco's peers supported skilled and highly influential local organizers like Gloria Richardson Dandridge and the Cambridge Nonviolent Action Committee. Together, they bravely fought against discrimination and regular racist violence and for improved economic conditions for black folks. The fight in Cambridge was intense. When Howard Stokely Carmichael reflected on the experience, he called it, quote, Nag's local Mississippi. For just like the Deep South, the activists gambled with their lives every time they protested. So one thing we don't really think about is the small ways that uh, black freedom activism could change people like Sister Coco and the conversations, the, the ideas that she was experiencing all grew her thinking and began to reshape her identity. One of the ways this manifested was the evolution of her hairstyles and even changes in her name. So, um... I want to ask you two things. One is about something you just said about um, names. So, so you took on the name Coco, and I, th- I think you told me in a, pri- a, a prior interview that a friend of yours gave you that name. Yes. A, a guy, I, I'm forgetting his name right now. Sally. Yes, that's right. Sally was my hairdresser. That's how I met him. He was a hairdresser out in the Far Ward 7 area. Sheriff Road, uh, near where I worked and lived. That was the closest hairdresser to both of them. And uh, I'd never had a man do anything to my hair. So when I went in there, I don't know if I asked for him. I don't know if he's the only one available or how it came to be, but we uh, eventually became friends. 
so why did you um why do you think the name coco stuck or why did you continue going by it jean my my birth name was dorothy jean in fact my mom a little story behind it took it from her sister her sister and she were pregnant at the same time and she had had some experience with her sisters her other three sisters uh, having boys uh, I was the only girl well my sister my sister before me was the only girl everybody had boys boys and she wanted a girl so she said if I have a girl I'm going to name her Dorothy Jean and if I have a boy I'll name him Eugene and I came on the 23rd of the month and my mom took and I was a girl and my mom took the, the girl name she said oh my goodness you took my girl name suppose I have a girl what will I do and, and three days later she had a boy so it was Eugene and Dorothy Jean. So when I got to Howard, I continued Jean. And um, when he gave me the cocoa, suggested the cocoa, I said, I like that. And he said, he's going to spell it K-O-K-O and not C-O-C-O. I say cocoa because of your color. You're a nice cocoa color, but we'll, make, we'll spell it differently. So it wasn't any um, process or <laughs> any divination or anything like that. <laughs> he suggested it. I liked it. I kept it. To you, do did it feel anything similar to other folks who were, you know, just changing their names and taking on their own identities, or did it just feel like, oh, this is my family and my friends who are calling me this, and I like it, and so I'm going to keep? Oh no, it definitely was part of the new identity. Oh, very definitely, very definitely. In fact, that's how why he even suggested something because I was talking about it to them. And that's the other reason why I like the KOKO. They are, there's a tribe, an area where they are, the name Coco is used for like grandmother or elder respected woman in the village. And many people took a name that meant, either meant something in terms of uh, African culture or after in a deity or a respected African person. And some people from the continent would suggest names to people and say, you know, in my village, you would be known as such and such. So while there were definite deliberate ways people chose to rename themselves to get rid of their so-called slave names, even though my mom named us, uh, I was Dorothy, I was Dorothy Sanders, my sister was Ella, after Ella Fitzgerald, names of people that were prominent in our community. So the idea was still there. It's just that they still were slave names. I'm just gonna switch this recording so this the camera's trained on you. All right, good. Okay, so we're we're gonna come back to talking about fashion and style. So that's one of the things I have noticed um, is, is that you're very stylish, always very stylish. And so um, want want to ask questions as your style evolves. In fact, since this, this becomes more meaningful, we get more into the, the, the time periods that are considered black power. How was your hairstyle in this in this time when you first came to Howard University? I had a perm. I can't really recall if it was a perm or just straightened but uh, I was not in a fro yet. That was a Sali date. 
Okay, so you're going to have to tell us more about that when, when we get to that. But but right now, tell me why it is that you had either a perm or a, a press during that period. Because that's what you did. Um, the so-called black and I'm proud period had not come. And that's what black girls did. They pressed their hair so they would look more acceptable and being closer to looking white was more acceptable. But you must know, we didn't at the time, that just having pressed hair didn't make you look more white. <laughs> Between 1964 and 1965, Sister Coco reached the first major turning point of her life. Her community-centered upbringing in Newport News, Virginia, and dedication to civil rights activism slowly pushed her focus from her studies at Howard and into organizing in the Washington, D.C. metro area. This transition happened at a fateful time. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963 brought to office Lyndon B. Johnson. Johnson would sign into law the most important civil rights legislation of the 20th century. But he also promised something new. A war on poverty. Sister Coco would become one of the earliest foot soldiers in the anti-poverty fight in the D.C. area. She and other SNCC activists seized the opportunity for new resources to improve Black Washington life. Tune in to episode 3 where we'll find Sister Coco fine-tuning her community organizing and activism skills in the new SNCC DC office, just in time for the Black Power Movement. This has been a special production for Humanities DC's Porch Tales. I'm guest producer Professor D. Boos alongside DJ Influence. If you enjoyed this show and want to hear more, check out my regular podcast called The Self-Determined Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, history, art, activism. Be about it. Porch Tales is produced by Humanities DC. If you want to share your DC story, check out the link in the show notes and be sure to rate and review us wherever our podcast lives on your favorite podcast player. This season is made possible by funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities. <laughs>